many Christians struggle to defend the truth of the Christian worldview. But what if there was a podcast dedicated to answering the toughest objections to Christianity? That's the mission of the Daily Apologist podcast. And on today's episode, I finished my interview with Dr. Josh Rasmussen on the ontological argument for the existence of God. So let me try and get some clarification on at least that third pathway, yeah. right? Because admittedly, I see what you're trying to accomplish in that, in, in using the modal cosmological argument. Now, I'm not clear specifically, and, and maybe it's just my inability to think through it on the spot. So, so explain to me how the, the um, modal cosmological argument, you're saying if it's possible, if it's possible for contingent, finite, imperfect things mm -hmm. to be caused. Is that, I got you there so far? Roughly, yeah. I was kind of abbreviating, but oh, uh, sorry. continue. Yeah, so we might, have to, we might really have to get this clear. But no, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. If it's possible for those things to be caused, yeah, then they are. Okay. So the goal here, thank you for that. So the goal is to see if we can show that possibly there's a maximal being. Okay. That's the goal because we already have an independent resource for deducing the actual existence of a maximal being from its possible existence. Okay. So all we're trying to do is see if we can show the possibility of a maximal being. And so the argument is that if it's even possible for there to be a kind of non-circular ultimate explanation of the fact that there are, let's say, mm -hmm. um, non-maximal things, gotcha. then because it's, it's non-circular, then the only way that that could even possibly, there could even be, a possible explanation is if that explanation is itself maximal. Gotcha. And this gets you to the possibility of a maximal being. And so the question that the audience is going to ask is, okay, I see that, but how does that break the symmetry or, or the stalemate of these two things and the ontological yes. argument? They might say, well, that's a cosmological argument. That's great. But how does it break the stalemate of the ontological argument? It gives us a reason to think that a maximal being is possible without having, because basically we have a question. Is it possible that it, there's a maximal being or is it possible that there is no maximal being? Only one of those possibilities is really possible. Okay. Sure. No, that's true. Given, given the next premise. So what we need to break the stalemate is some reason to prefer one possibility over the other. It doesn't all also apply to the other to the other one. And so this modal cosmological argument is a support. It's a reason to think that it's possible for there to be a maximal being. And so if there's a possible maximal being that exists as the cause of these things, then it it breaks the 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 stalemate between the impossibility and the possibility because it's a positive case for the pos for the maximum yeah. great being existing yeah. than for its impossible existence. Yeah, or even its possible non-existence. Yeah, possible non-existence. Yeah, Sorry. that's right. Yeah, that's right. You got it. 
Okay. So, so then that is, uh, I'll, I'll be the first one to it, to admit live on the podcast that that is new to me. And I am excited about that because one of the things that, you know, you always have when you have this conversation with somebody is, Hey, if it's, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, mm-hmm. then it's just equally possible that he doesn't exist. Yeah. And so you do have it. Well, I, I got to see that, that that's true. So I really can't go any further with the ontological argument because there is this possibility versus, you know, yeah. it's not possible. And I think that I'm that's, curious to ask you, Dean, yeah. how, how you have kind of responded to that symmetry yourself. Yeah. Prior to hearing these symmetry breakers. Well, I I really have just said, um, you know, it's I usually would go to another argument to to show that I would say, okay, well, now I'm gonna support the ontological argument with um probably my favorite argument, which is the Kalam argument, and say, Okay, well, what what if we change the background information here to okay, ontological argument here. And now let's look at the Kalam. And if the Kalam mm-hmm. is true, doesn't that support the possibility of a maximally great being? Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and, and I agree with um, Dr. Ben Arbor on this, um, is I'm not sure that the Kalam gets you a maximally great being. Mm-hmm. It might get you a timeless, spaceless, mm-hmm. immaterial being. That's personal yeah. powerful. Well, and then the worry is maybe you're switching arguments now. Because... And, that's, and that's usually what, what I'll what I'll get is well now you've switched the argument. You're not supporting yeah. the ontological argument, you're supporting the Kalam argument. But it's interesting you mentioned Ben Arbor on this. You failed. Yeah. He says you've you've abandoned the ontological argument in favor of the Kalam, which yeah. is apt and then I just show my hand and say you're absolutely right. <laughs> this is really interesting because Ben and I, we've actually talked about this, this very issue. And He's kind of worked out an interesting, he sent me a draft a couple of years ago of a kind of probabilistic argument where you have all these different arguments, like from design, from morality, from cause and effect. And each of those adds to the probability of the possibility. I agree. Of a maximal great. And maybe that is kind of a helpful way of thinking of it. Like sorry, if you, cut out there. Yeah. So, so each of these classical it. arguments, you might think, adds the probability of the possibility. Um, and that might be kind of a helpful way of sort of thinking of it where it's, it's almost like what these other classical arguments are doing um, is providing sort of different supports of different features. And then what the ontological argument is doing is sort of organizing those features. It's like, well, why knowledge via the design argument? Why morality via the moral argument? Why sort of fundamental existence by the cosmological argument well because those are all great making Mm -hmm. and oh by the way we would expect those great making features to be predicted by this more singular property of absolute perfection there's a kind of simplicity there that sort of predicts this and that predictive success you can kind of think of this scientifically Um, you have a hypothesis that there's this absolutely perfect foundation and this hypothesis has predictive success revealed via these other classical arguments. And then that predictive success pumps the probability of the possibility 
that the maximum of great this being maximum great being. And maybe that's kind of intuitively what you're kind of picking up on when you're doing, when you're having these conversations, maybe that's what's going on there actually. Maybe I've, I've but, never, but, thought, I've never thought, but I, I think that, it is helpful, sense, but sure. It is helpful. I think to have kind of more of a, a clear path where like this modal cosmological argument, or I actually have a publication on Planiga's modal argument where I support it in another way um, through what I talk about is a kind of uniformity of value. So I say like, well, if one degree of value is possible, then unless we have some reason to think that some other degree of value is impossible, we should just treat them as all possible. That should be kind of your default sense. And, um, and then I, I wasn't able to find a way of reversing that, but I consider a few possible ways of reversing that. And that would be actually a fourth strategy for yeah. breaking the symmetry. There you go. So um, make sure you send me those links because I want to yeah, put those in the description sure. of the podcast because invariably there will be people that listen to this podcast. And what we used to say, I was in the Marine Corps for six years. What we used to say in the Marine Corps is, you know, sometimes people will get lost in the sauce of, yeah. of everything. And that's okay. That's fine. For sure. Um, yeah. So now that we've, we've broken at least the, the stalemate, as I, I like to say, there's, there are a couple other objections that aren't, I wouldn't say are as major as that one, but are still very uh, relevant and that are out there in uh, where, I, where I deal the, the social media, you know, area, the blogosphere, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one is just um, one of these, it, well, let me rephrase that. We can edit this, this back later. So there's an there's a objection that is out there mm-hmm. in the social in social media land, and then there's one that actually comes from a close friend. He he he. I asked him, "Is like, hey, do you want me to ask, you know, Doctor Rasmussen this question?" And and I, he's like, "Yeah," and I'll I'll do it. So the the first one would be as Immanuel Kant critiques mm-hmm. Anselm. Uh, he talks about the use of the predicate and basically seeks to undercut Anselm because um, the the way in which um, I'm trying to re- trying to remember the, the, the way in which um, Kant says that the way in which Anselm uses the predicate presupposes mm-hmm. that God exists. And therefore, it is circular. At least, I think that's the rough version. Or that existence itself. No, the existence is itself a predicate, is a or it's a real predicate. Yeah, or real property. Or, yeah. So, would that objection? I guess my question is: Does that objection? Do you think that objection applies? It doesn't apply to these updated versions. Although I just want to say it's interesting because when I read Kant for myself on this. I've teased out three different objections that he had, and it seemed like the existence isn't a predicate objection, wasn't even his main one. But that's the one that sort of gets taught in the schools and stuff. And so So, a kind of standard reply is like, like, look, even if, well, first of all, his argument against existence being a credit, a predicate doesn't seem like it's a good argument anyway. But, well, I, I don't even want to chase that because the sort of standard reply is that, look, even if it isn't a predicate, because he says something about like, it doesn't add to a thing, but like, what do you mean? I mean, it adds to everything. It, I, I, I don't want to chase that because like, even if existence isn't a predicate, we don't need that. Well, all that we need is that there is this existence called necessary existence. 
And intuitively, that would be the kind of thing that would uh, make a thing great, especially if it's necessary existence with respect to great attributes. So the necessary existence of love is great. <laughs> you know, the necessary existence of, um, you know, being intelligent, that's great. And so even if his existence doesn't quote, like add to a thing, the necessary existence seems like it would intuitively add something. And this is kind of a standard, you know, like in graduate school, this is kind of like a response that like even skeptics of the analogical argument would sort of give this line um, in, in sort of the dialectic. So I don't think that that argument really removes the best versions of the analogical argument, though I think it, it may in, in fact call into question um, maybe Anselm's original formulation or a certain version of that. But, but it doesn't do, but you're, what you're saying is that that doesn't hold weight in these updated iterations. Yeah, I don't see that it does. I mean, I, I did see Scott Clifton had a little video on the ontological argument and a beautiful video. And well, he had an argument at the end where he was calling the question necessary existence as well. He had, said something like, if, there, if existence isn't a predicate or if existence isn't a real property, then neither, neither is necessary existence. And maybe because he was thinking that necessary existence has to be defined in terms of existence, I'm not sure, but sort of a standard move or standard way of articulating necessary existence is just to put the necessary operator out in front of the sentence. So you have necessarily X exists, or if you don't like exists, just say necessarily X is powerful. And you know, <laughs> that's fine too. Um, and so that will get you, or, or just X is powerful in all possible worlds is another way of, of putting it. Gotcha. And so that doesn't seem to be a problem. And you can formulate that rigorously in terms of contemporary modal logic. And I think that's really the, the insight that Kant wasn't working with our latest tools. You know? And that's so true. this Kantian objection, um, I actually talk about this in one of my articles on the cosmological argument, because he's got sort of a similar set of objections to these different arguments. And one of the things I point out is that he wasn't working with our best logic that we have today. And I think that even explains why this objection doesn't really come up as like the best objection to the argument today. I, I don't see that. Yeah. This is kind of a historical relic. <laughs> yeah, that needs to be buried. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't necessarily want to bury anything. You know, it's always good for people to explore things, but but it, it, it does kind of sadden me a little bit, I will say this, Dean, is mm -hmm. I'll see almost like these, almost like memes or um, idea packages that are like floating out there. And it's like, you know what, like we're actually past that. Like we've worked through that. We've gotten very precise. And when I say we, I mean atheists and theists alike. Like we're not, that th those aren't the objections we're worried about. We're not thinking about those. But the problem is, is that these greater insights and understandings and, and, and clarifications are sort of locked behind the scenes in academic halls, which by the way, is like yeah. really great that you have a show like yours where we can sort of unleash and unlock and unveil some of these things. Yeah, so well, see that. I mean, that's, that's one of the things, um, you know, kind of an, an offshoot of the topic real quick. That's one of the things that, you know, just individually and collectively, um, at the Daily Apologist, one of the things that we want to do is we want to stretch, um, not we want to stretch the knowledge and the mind of the believer because um, these are things, whether they know it or not, 
that they will invariably run up against, whether it's Kant's objection or whether it's the stalemate that we've been talking about mm-hmm. um, with regards to the ontological argument. And they, they need to know those things. They need to stretch those things. They need to explore yeah. those things. Uh, one, and this is kind of getting into why do apologetics and why do philosophy? One, um, so that we can be really good defenders of truth. But two, um, I find it, you know, and amazing. I've, I've been looking at the ontological argument for maybe a month and a half max but the idea of understanding more about god as a maximally great being mm-hmm. in enriches my relationship with him because i know more uh more about him through mm-hmm. that type of argument and even with things like the teleological argument or the cosmological argument those families of arguments um, those those enrich my relationship with him and deepen my relationship with him more so if more so now than when I than I didn't know those things. So that's kind of mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm, I appreciate you you saying that and that's really the purpose of, of what we have going on here specifically with this with this podcast. And so, kind of moving, if if you can, if you want to comment yeah. on that, go for it. I if really not, just resonate with what you're saying there. Um, and even just like, just understanding like that God is great and you can't even think of a being greater than God. Like that brings you into worship. And I have to tell you, actually, I was in worship when I came up with this new way of breaking the symmetry, the fourth way that I mentioned briefly yeah. on the continuity of value. But it was like, there was something about like being acquainted with God's goodness in worship that like drew me in to his nature and to think of his nature. And that sort of led me, that opened up new doors in philosophy. And what you're saying is you can go the other way. Like when you see more in philosophy that can open up new connections to God um, because you're seeing, Oh, like he's just purely perfect. And you understand that the list, this is what really touches me is because I would sort of be worried. Like, well, did somebody just sort of make up an arbitrary list of properties um, to sort of capture their culture and that's their God and every culture has their own God. So how can I like have any confidence that one particular God is real? It's like, well, if you realize that actually the classical concept of God is a concept of a being that has actually a very simple, elegant nature and that predicts all of these classical properties of omniscience, omnipotence, uh, you know, moral perfection. Yeah. It's not just an arbitrary list. And it happens to match the sorts of things that we find in um, historical encounters with the divine, the ultimate divine. Yeah. And I mean, I would even say that the text of scripture outlines God as having those properties, mm-hmm. which is, which I find really cool too. Yeah. So, let me let me move on. I mean, I I would love to talk to you for hours just about that concept. Um, <laughs> um, so one question that I that I get has to do with um, knowledge. Um, and and I I'm not completely sure where my friend is going with this. 
and it seems to be with the ability to know that other people or beings exist a priori because mm-hmm. i guess he he would like to say that this is a, a call to knowing that god exists a priori yeah through the possibility yeah and so his the, the question that he has is can we have knowledge of the existence of anyone other than ourselves a priori well anyone is a little trickier um if he said anything then i would say well yeah the the argument from logic that i outlined earlier mm-hmm. i think you can know a priori that logic exists and that logic has a necessity to it and then you can deduce that the existence of logic such as the principle that nothing can be both read and not read at the same time that that's that principle is true and so corresponds to some conceptual reality or abstract reality whether or not you're thinking about it like before you were born nothing could be both read and not read at the same time not read yeah that was true even before you were born there was no married bachelor before i was born this is really important because what you're seeing within your own mind is a kind of transcendent beam of reason you see it in your mind but but you also see that it's not contained only in your mind you see that it transcends your mind by reason itself you deduce that reason has a necessity and so therefore it doesn't depend merely on whether you're thinking about it. And that's a really key argument. I think it does mm-hmm. kind of open it up because if you can see a priori that something exists outside of you, namely these being beams of logic, these principles, and they actually have a kind of structure of a thought, now it, it removes at least one barrier to the ontological argument. Mm-hmm. Now he, he was a little more precise because, you know, how can you show that any one yeah. exists? Well, and I think there... Yeah. Well, and that's because he would say that God isn't just a thing, that God is personal. personal. Yeah. So the question is, um, how, how could I know based on the ontological argument that God exists a priori? Yeah, and it might be that the ontological argument is like precisely a pathway, <laughs> you know, to see yeah. that there is this supreme being. I mean, I would argue that a reason to think that God is personal is because God has a maximal mind and mm-hmm. having maximal mind is what is predicted by supreme absolute perfection or supreme greatness. Otherwise, we can imagine a greater being. Mm-hmm. So let me ask this yeah. question. If, if you can't know anyone a priori, does that just shut down the ontological argument? If you can see that you can't know. <laughs> okay. In other words, you have to be able to somehow know that you can't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to just sort of leave that open. I, I'm kind of an explorer at heart. You know, yeah. there's different personalities. I'm an explorer. So that's what I'm going to lean into. And I want to sort of invite anybody who's considering this to sort of explore that, like how, like write out the argument, like write out the premises, try to show that nobody can know. I think usually what happens, it's kind of just assumed that you can't know. And you, people think of examples like, well, I can't know that my mom exists just a priori, or it's sort of by definition, if it's a priori, then it doesn't lead to external reality. Well, you can break that, I think, with the argument from logic. And so so really, you'd have to somehow show that. But if you could, then I think it would um, 
reveal that the ontological argument has to be problematic somehow. Gotcha. So real quick, just for a listener, yeah. I should have done this before I raise the question or after I raise the question. What does it mean to, what, is, what does a priori mean for our listeners? Yeah, that's what I was kind of saying, the light of reason or by reason, um, you know, you sort of see it not through your five empirical senses, through seeing or hearing or, you know, through, through smelling it. You don't smell that two plus two equals four. That's not how it works. Um, you might think, well, you're using a kind of introspection where you sort of, that inner light where you kind of sense what you're thinking and feeling. But you can have thoughts about logic, like two plus two equals six. And you know you're having that thought, like I just had it, by introspection, but you don't know whether it's true just by introspection. You need this other faculty to verify that two plus two equals six doesn't match with reality. And it's sort of blindingly obvious. So we almost like look past the window and we don't see the window itself. But the window there is, is the a priori faculty of reasoning where you can just, it sort of clicks. It's like, oh, two plus two equals four. Nothing can be both green and not green. You know, it's like, I think people skate past this because the laws of logic, some of them are handed to them by authority. And so they really believe it by hearing somebody say, yeah. these are the truths. And then they think, oh, these are all the truths. And they don't know, actually, we haven't even um, demonstrated that the Gödel's incompleteness theorem sort of opens up the fact that there are a priori truths that um, you know, we haven't even demonstrated. So we don't even have the limits. We don't even know the limits to what we can know a priori. At least that hasn't been demonstrated. Gotcha. Well, um, it has been uh, a, a great time talking it's to you. It's hard to stop. It's just so much it's hard. Fun. hard to, it's hard to stop. Um, so uh, I, I would just say, once again, thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate it. And so what I do with all of my guests is I say, hey, if you have um, uh, something that is coming to publication, if mm. there's a website that we can reach you at, if there's a podcast that you have, anything that you want to, to plug so our listeners can get more of Dr. Josh Rasmussen, where, where can we find that? What's coming down the pipe for you? Yeah, so probably for your listeners, um, just my, my academic website, joshualrasmussen.com, and you'll probably have a link below for them. Um, and then the, my work that's the most relevant to this conversation would be my book, How Reason Can Lead to God. And in the final chapter of the book, I actually include, I call it a secret argument, which um, is a version of this kind of modal cosmological argument. It's precisely laid out as a way of breaking the symmetry. Although I don't present it as a way of breaking the symmetry, um, but that is, you could, you could use it. It's sort of like a key that you can use to unlock the door into the ontological argument. So that would be, I think, helpful. I just love what you're doing. I, and now I'm getting even more of a feeling of like what your ministry is. And I feel like I just want to tell you, Dean, like this is so important for people. It's so oh, equipping and so encouraging. Like people need, they need this stuff. Well, and, I appreciate um, that. Outstanding. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for, for tuning in to the Daily Apologist podcast. Between this episode and next episode, make sure you go ahead and catch us on all of the social media platforms that we have that's instagram twitter facebook tiktok uh, pinterest uh, all of them are at the daily apologist you can definitely catch up on uh, the podcast at www.thedailyapologist.com you'll find our blogs or videos um, our 
events that have been canceled throughout the year because of COVID-19. You can also check out our link to our social media there as well. Um, and remember, uh, as you move from that stuff to uh, our next episode, remember to equip yourself to engage culture. <laughs>